Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Cat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 107, That Girl You Haven't Explained. This week, we're discussing season 5, episode 2 of Buffy, Real Me, and series 7, episode 11 of Doctor Who, The Crimson Horror. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. So, Buffy, real me. So, let's talk about metafiction for a second here, okay? So, <laughs> okay. Uh, That's not where I thought you were going, but sure. Well, I don't think I'm going further than you think, but I want to start with this, this uh, you know, kind of acknowledging but never acknowledging openly what we all know to be true which is that dawn is like this big question mark you know um sure and the you know kind of like clara and doctor who except the doctor knows that she's a mystery here we just are presented mm-hmm. with the mystery and you know the characters right. don't know that there's a mystery right now right but we do um they, or they seem not they to seem anyway. not to um, or they're temporarily fooled into not realizing it or whatever it is. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I wanted to start with the fact that, you know, we got that little glimpse of her at the last episode. Um, and then here we are, you know, just open cold with her, you know, kind of as if she's just part of the series and go the whole episode with no explanation and no even, uh, there's a few references that kind of skim the surface of being Mm. overt, but only just, you know? Um, And I feel like, I don't know why you would do this, but if there was somebody who was watching, say, season five and had never seen any other episodes, they might catch that there are a few references to her being sort of unusual or out of place, but they might not. Like, I feel like you could kind of watch this episode... And, Mm -hmm. you know, just take it as that she has always been there. And, you know, um, so, but there are those little, you know, I guess, metatextual, like, uh, self-referential kind of winks at the fact that she is, you know, we don't know how she's there. So, like, you know, like the title, um, you know, Real Me. So, you know, we have Dawn kind of lamenting that nobody knows the real her and we get harmony saying the same thing later on um you know so you have these characters who feel like they're not appreciated and that nobody really knows them but even that is kind of a wink at this question of what who is the real dawn is there a real dawn you know like is she real is she Mm. you know a real person is she some sort of spell or like what even just that kind of title is like a nod to the question of her reality or not. Um, and I mean, there's lots of little, it, it, like the way I put it to myself is like, just like an actor stays in character. This episode kind of stays in joke. Sure. Like it never breaks the joke of, you know, Dawn is here, but isn't here. So there's all these little nods to the fact that, you know, uh, Buffy saying, 
Well, it's not as if she hasn't grown up in this house with the right. rules, kind of complaining that she should know this stuff. But of course, we know she hasn't grown up in this house with the rules. Like so far as yes, we know. so far as we know, maybe that we're in some sort of. There's a million different ways you could explain it. Maybe we are in some sort of alternate, you know, reality where she has been there or whatever. But, you know, up to this point that we've seen, right? to me, that's like an in-joke to the fact that how should she know the rules? She just got here. <laughs> like, she just got here, you know, as far as we know, like, an episode ago. And, yeah, everybody seems to know her, but it made me wonder how much of her not fitting in and not knowing how to act is a reflection of the fact that really she's just brand new to the series, you know, and, you know, all those little kind of uh, jokes and references like that. Sure. Um, sure. Um, yeah. And I didn't actually intend to really say much about, from like a production note side of things, but I do think mm -hmm. like that's interesting that you bring that up because there is, there is a sense in which it is all sort of being made up on the spot. In fact, um, mm -hmm. so this episode was written by David Fury and in an interview that he gave, he, he says actually that he was given pretty much freedom to create Dawn in however he wanted. Like, Mm -hmm. she all he knew was that she would be a 14 year old girl mm -hmm. and that's it and i mean and like you know buffy's sister or whatever but like like right. from there so all of this stuff like the different relationships and the different you know the you know there's this whole like sort of diary voiceover aspect mm -hmm. of the episode where you're getting all of don's you know sort of first person thoughts about different people and and experiences and stuff all of that is pretty much just being up, made up by david fury like there's really no direction uh mm -hmm. that he was given by joss i mean say no i i find it hard to believe that joss didn't give any literal direction but sure. you know but a large part of that like the way that she interacts with the characters and and the way that she sort of thinks of you know like yeah, has sort of a crush on Xander, but hates mm -hmm. Anya. And you're not quite sure, is it because right. she has a crush on Xander or because she's just really annoyed by Anya or maybe a little of both. Right. Um, a little bit of both, yeah. You know, or the way that she really loves, like, you know, uh, Willow and Tara are kind of like the fun aunt figures sort right, of in a right, way. Right. And, and like she can sort of appreciate Riley and his affection for her sister, but also thinks the whole, you know, they're kind of gross and like whatever mm -hmm. and that giles is just some sort of weird amorphous old authority figure and doesn't really know right. how old he is exactly but you know okay he's kind of there you know um yeah. like that all of these things were just yeah just very much stuff that david fury had sort of carte blanche to create so mm -hmm. um so there is, like, even, like you were saying, like, sort of on the metafictional level, like, there is this sense of, like, just trying to fit this new character into the show, mm -hmm. insofar as, as I think you're right, like, like, there's, we know, having watched the show, that she wasn't always there. And I guess the question, like, the question that still remains, though, is... Buffy seems to think that she was always there, right? By her, like, we, I don't think we're meant to take like her comments as being like, oh, haha, ha, snicker, snicker. Buff, you know, Buffy really actually no. thinks that she yeah. was there and has, yes, 
memories apparently and Mm -hmm. ideas about um you know dawn having been there and that she should know this stuff regardless of whether she does or not that she should know this stuff and why should she know this stuff well because she's always been here and she's grown up in this house and that kind of stuff so um so i think yeah from the character perspective they're totally sincere Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah um and 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 I would say Dawn as well has mm-hmm. those same memories or so it seems like you said, like, I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away whether she's actually a person or isn't a person or, you know, right. is she a spell or is she something else completely and whatever. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I want, I want you to keep guessing for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, but presumably like, yeah, we, we do see, Dawn seems to have those memories. And it, like, I mean, it's not like, like you mentioned, like, okay, like the beginning of last week, like we get references to like Dawn being aware of Dracula sometime last week. Right. But at the same time, it's like, if all of the other memories that we know are false, like what does she actually know? Like it was, it was after the whole Dracula thing that she actually appeared. Like how long after mm-hmm. that? Like, it, there could be like a few minutes between when we last saw mm-hmm. her and the beginning of this episode, or that could be right. an entire week or whatever. Like there's just, we don't actually know exactly what point Dawn came, but we do know that, that she's for whatever reason we haven't seen her. And it seems improbable that she would have been around before that. Um, one other sort of production thing, actually, which is while I'm kind of on that. Um, so Michelle Trachtenberg, uh, originally Dawn was um, going to be younger. She was going to be 12. Um, and here mm-hmm. she's 14. I mean, not much younger, but, you know, gap between 12 and 14 isn't insignificant. Um, you mm-hmm. know, kids kind of grow up a lot in those preteen to teen years. So, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that's just on that that entering high school yeah. phase from the difference between middle school and high school and everything. Um, and, and so sort of an interesting thing about her being cast, uh, Michelle Trachtenberg being cast in the role of Don is that she was actually a fan of the show and mm-hmm. had written to Joss Whedon saying, uh, Hey, I'd love to be a character on Buffy. And, and I don't, I mean, I don't know exactly at what point he like maybe saw that letter or whatever, but it was actually Sarah Michelle Geller who suggested that they look at Michelle Trachtenberg from, and, and you mentioned, I mean, it's not like she was unknown per se before this role, but, um, you know, sure. she had certainly been in other stuff and, and apparently had at least caught Sarah Michelle Geller's eye and, and kind of, you know, funny that she had written this fan letter to Joss. Again, I don't know mm-hmm. if he ever even saw it before she was cast or whatever, but you know, at least that had happened and she had, yeah. she had been a fan of the show and stuff. So it's, it's kind of a fun, you know, an interesting way that this show has kind of been around long enough at this point to have, you know, these fans and to kind of, I mean, we even talked about how like back in season two, like how Spike was supposed to be, you know, sort of written off right. the show and there was sort of a fan reaction, but you right. know, this is sort of another aspect or angle of that kind of thing where you have, you know, viewers now being helping to be creators and, and influencing the show and that kind of thing. So, yeah, no, I, um, I definitely knew her. Um, I didn't know at the time, 
I don't think Buffy was on my radar yet of things that I, sure, you know, it wasn't quite, I definitely wasn't what I was watching, but it wasn't even necessarily something I knew about then. Um, but I mean, maybe I'd seen the movie or maybe I'd heard reference to the TV show, but, um, but I certainly wasn't watching it, but I definitely knew, uh, Michelle Trachtenberg from younger, um, on Pete and Pete, which was a very uh, clever little kid show on Nickelodeon, mm. was a favorite of mine. Um, and uh, she was also in the film version of Harriet the Spy, which was another favorite. So when I was, you know, I don't know, whatever, 10 or 11, she was like, you know, one of the kids' stars that I knew. So sure. it's kind of funny now to see her. I mean, obviously, she's older than this now, but it's funny now to look at her. Older than what I remember her, and you know, watch what she's in, yeah. and but still, I mean, still fairly young at the time. I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's only a couple of years after I would have been watching those things. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually not long after that, so um, right. So yeah, no, that should be that should be interesting. And, you know, then interesting to hear, like, you know, I'm sure Joss has. Um, at the point that he created and introduced the character, I'm sure he had ideas um, of who she was and where he wanted her to go. But interesting that he is um, open to other input as far as shaping the character mm -hmm. from from the, the actor and then also from the writer, too, to sort of, okay, like he knows he wants to introduce this character, but he's open to other interpretations of what exactly is she going to be like. Um you know, and kind of let the actor and the writer, you know, help him figure that out. Um, it it sounds like that's interesting. Like, there's a fair, more so than, like, you know, obviously, like, the main characters who we meet right away, like the, the Buffy, Willow, Xander, like, he has a more clear idea, I think, in his mind of what kind of characters they are, and then they evolve over time. Whereas here, mm -hmm. it sounds like he's kind of, more um doing that thing that they do sometimes where like they they tailor fit the the suit for the part kind of thing sure. you know if, okay well we know we want a character but we'll see kind of where it goes you know what kind of person they end up being in the show itself right so right um, um and so one one interesting thing and I, w I was kind of curious i don't um i don't know how Sarah Michelle Geller and Michelle Trachtenberg knew each other, but apparently mm -hmm. they were both on All My Children at the same time. So okay. um, Sarah Michelle Geller was on that show uh, from 1993 to 95 um, mm -hmm. as Kendall Hart. Uh, and uh, Michelle Trachtenberg was on from 93 to 96 uh, as Lily Benton Montgomery the first, or or number one, maybe 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 that means there was a later version of that character. Maybe that's what that means. But um, that's something the most, like that. Uh, um, soap opera name ever, I think. Yeah. So so interesting. They were on that show. So that might be even where Sarah Michelle well, Gellar knew other, knew, right? knew her from as a as right. a very young actor at that point. Like she would have mm -hmm. been younger than ten, at least when she started. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, Trachtenberg would have been not not Geller, um, and uh, you know just as maybe happens with stars who work together, like she kind of 
knew other stuff that she was in and that sort of thing and kind of kept an eye on her career and then sure brought, helped helped to bring her in so thought she would be a good fit yeah, yeah. um anyway so yeah, I know we weren't necessarily initially to go down that road, but I think I think that kind of fits in well with your comments about there is this you know theme in this episode of trying to fit in, and I and I would say as we talk through the different mm-hmm. characters too, like not even just with Dawn, but yeah. Tara tries to explain it, uh, you know, to Willow and kind of does so unsuccessfully, and even Riley. It's interesting mm-hmm. to me it, it, of of sort of the three. Scooby couples, um, mm-hmm. Tara and Riley, at least both sort of clearly take Dawn's side, at least, mm-hmm. at least in, in, you know, with Tara, it's more of like empathy, you know, trying to say, mm-hmm. you know, empathize with her. And with, with Riley, it's more of a, you know, Hey, ease up. She's just a kid, mm-hmm. which isn't quite the same as the em- empathic um, reply, mm-hmm. but it is still sort of like, you know, try to look at it from Don's perspective at least. And, and so, um, less so with Xander and, uh, Xander and Anya, but they are more talking to Don about it rather than talking, you know, talking to each other or Buffy. So, um, sure. But even when they're talking to Buffy later and they have to kind of break the news that Don let harmony in and everything they try to you can see they're not just selling her out it's like they're reluctant to tell buffy this they do kind of Mm -hmm. tell her you know she didn't mean it that way she made a mistake they're trying to sort of ease the blow a bit so even with them i feel like yeah there is a bit not totally taking dawn's side but but i guess encouraging buffy to not overreact about it sure um so um so yeah i do i do like that's just there is definitely this theme again of like the outsider and and so yeah when you have not it's not just the new character and it's also the new actress and figuring out what all of that how all of that's going to fit in and fit together and i kind of said the same thing for riley um so i'll i'll mention it up front here and sort of Mm we can we can look at how we feel about Dawn as a character as as her character develops. Yeah. There are I've mentioned that there are people who dislike Riley. Mm-hmm. Those people pale in comparison to the people who dislike Dawn. I even I know yeah. how much people don't like Dawn. Like <laughs> like when there are when there are consistently and I see this I see this still on like Facebook groups that I'm you know part of or mm-hmm. whatever like you know who's your least favorite character there is one angel character who consistently sort of vies but Don is consistently put as like one of yeah. the worst if not worst characters that people just despise now I mean I know we haven't really gotten into her um right I would say the same thing that I said about Riley that mm-hmm. I think Given what I just said about the fact that David Fury sort of basically created her out of whole cloth, like, uh-huh. I mean, you know, other than the basics that her name is Dawn and she's Buffy's sister, you know, that sort of, and and whatever plans Whedon might have had for her down the road, like all yeah. of her personality characteristics and all of that, I would just say, let's be sure to look at her as 
a young teenage girl and maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, take that into consideration when thinking about Don's character. And also, I mean, and it comes up somewhat here, but also the fact that she's a 14 year old, you know, girl who has a big sister who is literally a superhero, you know, you know, so all of these ideas of pressure and, and all of this, Mm-hmm. Let's just keep all that in mind. <laughs> yeah. And that's not to say that she won't ever be annoying or stupid or whatever, but in the context of her character, I would just say yeah. I and I don't I don't mean to sway one way or the other, but I I, mm-hmm. I do feel like I mean I said this with Riley and I'll say it with Don again. Like I feel like some characters are given short shrift because it because it becomes that like likability factor, right? It's so oh, I don't mm-hmm. I don't like this person or I don't agree with what they do or I think you know I don't know whatever and it's like okay that's fine but let's look at how they actually act and how the characters actually integrate with the story and then see what their faults are and whether that makes sense and is consistent with the story or whether you know I mean it might not like there might be times I would say okay well and I think we've done a pretty good job with that at times but Mm -hmm. um I just wanted to, again, acknowledge that up front so that we could maybe keep an eye out for it because there are, there are, I mean, there are literally people who like hate Dawn and I'm like, I don't know that I've ever hated a fictional character quite that much, but Uh you know, it would be ridiculous not to at least acknowledge it up front. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, obviously I, I am not going to make any sort of character judgments based on you know, an episode, like, I'll be interested to see, like, where it goes and everything. Um, I feel like it definitely, I want to be careful because I don't have any siblings. So I want to be careful about what I assume to be the case versus, so you can correct me if you have sibling experience that I don't have. I feel like it goes a bit for the the Don and Buffy have what I would see as somewhat of the stereotypical like rivalry of like jealous sister relationship, right? But it's also stereotypical because there's truth in there. <laughs> like, you know, and I'm not saying all sibling relationships are like this, but you know, like you said, there, there is that thing where, well, yeah, remember, this is a young and not wholly mature person whose big sister is uh, quite a lot to live up to. Mm. Um, so Dawn is definitely a bit of a brat in the episode, but I think given those things of her age and the family she lives in and the kind of, like you said, the pressure she's under, she's realistically bratty, I guess, you know? Um, So, you know, and we can talk about Buffy too. That's certainly a two way relationship, you know? Sure. And like we said, all the other characters seem to at least understand Dawn, you know, if they don't take her side entirely, they at least, defend her for, you know, wanting Buffy to kind of cut her a bit of slack. So 
I don't think it's presented as a all you know one is, one is right and one is one is wrong kind of sure. situation. Um, you know, but it's hard to deny the stuff you get like you know as she's as the voiceover is you know talking about how uh, everybody worships Buffy and how spoiled Buffy is. You get Dawn stealing the cereal. You know, so you get this cognitive dissonance of what she's saying versus what she's doing, which is sneaking the cereal and the milk. And it's nothing that big a deal. It's just those little things that, you know, um, it's those little things that happen in a house, like those little daily annoyances and how you are kind of take each other for granted and don't worry about if you're like stealing things from your sister or whatever. Um, but I can see how an audience could be turned against her, I guess, um, it, with something like that. Because you have her kind of uh, bemoaning how unfair everything is at the same time as she's, you know, acting unfairly towards her sister, you know. So, like I said, like, I'm not making any judgments, but I can kind of imagine what the criticism is you know um yeah you know sure sure um and so yeah i'm trying to think through because you had a lot (laughs) in there um i mean as far as so first of all as far as my own sibling experience i mean i had brothers so i don't i you know i don't know how that may or may not be different um, between uh, brothers and sisters. Um, And also I was significantly older than my next closest brother um, by, uh, by seven years. Although actually doing the math here, Buffy is 19, I believe at this point Mm -hmm. and Dawn is 14. So that's five years, five years. You know, I don't, I don't know. Like again, there might be different dynamics going on between sisters than, than there were with us. I was pretty much um, out of like their picture and they were pretty much out of my picture. Um, So, you know, that is what it is. Um, Clearly like she's still living at home in the same town. The other thing is I, by the time I was off to college, you know, and my brother was in, I don't know what, sixth grade or something. Um, Like, I was in a completely different city, you know, right, going to college. Like we're not sharing everything. space. I'm not, yeah. I came home maybe, you know, like at Christmas time and, you know, other breaks, even in the summers, like I wasn't really home cause I worked at camps and stuff. So like it was, was a very different um, situation well, for me. I think, sorry, I was just going to say too, I think that, um, you know, there's also like, there's definitely a teenage aspect, like no matter mm-hmm. how, how close the siblings might be like the younger sibling as she's becoming a teenager, like she's going to have seen what the older Mm -hmm. sibling did and maybe got away with and maybe what they didn't get away with. And so one knows sort of ways to avoid that. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, okay. Well, Buffy did these things and I'm going to be a little slyer slyer because she tried these things and I saw her get caught doing these things. And so I'm 
not going to do those things. I'm going to do it differently. Right. Um, and there's also just the thing of knowing how, regardless of what age, knowing how to kind of get your sibling riled mm-hmm. up in whatever way, like mm-hmm. just, just get those little, like, like this pouring the last, like, I mean, really there's nothing <laughs> wrong with having the last of the, the milk, last of the milk, but yeah. like, you know that your sibling just took that out and was about to use it. Right. So like that obviously is very underhanded and she yeah. does it when, you know, Joyce's back is turned and yeah. you know, there's nothing re- like, what else can you do? As the older sibling, right. I totally feel Buffy's uh, yeah. pain in that point. But, yeah. I mean, what else you get? Like, you could physically be like, oh, I hate you and punch her or something. But, like, that's not going to get you anywhere good. No. So, you know, just those kind of things of, yeah. you know, there's definitely that kind of stuff going on. But I, I agree with you. Like, one, it's it's definitely on both sides. Like, Buffy is looking at Dawn as being the annoying hindrance to everything she's trying to do rather than sort of accepting her as her own person. And, you know, that's a problem certainly too. So uh, the other thing is, so bringing up the fact that Dawn is 14, Buffy first became a slayer at 15. So, so this brings up the thing I was going to say too about like, like you know with you like if you're if you're older generally maybe the relationship isn't as fraught because by the time they're older you're out of the house you have your own life and your stuff going on whereas and it brings up to me this kind of issue throughout the episode of of dawn's maturity level not just the maturity of how she acts but how she's treated too you know buffy goes on about how there are babying her and coddling her and not expecting her to be mature but you get things like the fact that I like that moment where they're arguing about who's going to babysit her and she says babysitter I'm 14 I'm old enough to be a babysitter right you know and that's true you know I certainly I think you know 13 14 15 is about the age where oh yeah certainly you know I think you know kids are generally able to be home alone if not looking after other younger kids so you know that seems i feel like i i guess that could be just a plot device of we need a way to get dawn involved so the fact that buffy has to look after her is a way to do that but i feel like they made too big a deal out of it it seems like they're all very concerned with who's going to be with dawn all the time and that could be a thing of because they know of what danger is out there, they're overprotective, and right. that, yeah, she is a 14-year-old girl, but, you know, I guess they know that she does make mistakes, like inviting vampires in, so there needs to be adult supervision, sort of, all the time, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, and- anyway, I did notice that, because you're right, like, Buffy was only a little bit older than her, right. when she did all have all that, not only was she did she have more independence, but also had all that extra, you know, uh, you know, duties shoved on top of her too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, which is whole, the, that's the chip on Buffy's shoulder is, right. you know, I'm fighting slayers at 15 and this girl can't even stay home alone. 
you know, and right without inviting and, and a then, vampire in, <laughs> and then she invites a vampire in, and everyone makes excuses for her. Like Buffy's just so over that. So, yeah. um, I felt like they made a big enough point of that that I felt like that was intentionally sure. It wasn't just a plot. Yeah. I don't think it was just a plot convenience. I feel like that's a point of contention is exactly how much independence can or should right. be allowed to have at this point. And like how many times does Riley call her kid and she says, I'm not, yeah, a, I'm kid. not a kid. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And and it's funny because that, that is sort of the point that both Dawn and Buffy agree on is that she's not really a kid and she should know right. how to take care of herself, but that she doesn't quite. And but neither of them acknowledge the fact that she's clearly not quite there yet. Right. You know, they both treat, they both think of her as more capable than she seems and, to be. And so ignoring any question of whether she really has been there all along or not, like the question becomes of like, okay, so then whose fault is this? Is it really, I mean, partly Buffy's fault as much as Joyce's for, you know, coddling her or you know, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, in, in so far as she hasn't learned to take care of herself or is it just part of Don's personality? And I, I hesitate to say Don's fault because I mean, mm. to a certain degree, nobody's at fault for, you know, the personality they have because they're born with it. Sure. But there's also yeah. a sense in that, like, there are things you can do to overcome sort of your, uh, you know, natural whatever you know i mean you can learn to become more observant you can learn about things like not opening the door and inviting vampires in um Mm -hmm. you know those are certainly things that most people can can do no matter what their personality is and Mm -hmm. and to the point of like you know even um Oh, I, I forget who it was who brings up the fact that like, hey, just last week, Joyce opened the door for Dracula, you know, right. and it's like, right. well, she didn't know. And it's like suddenly Buffy's making excuses for her mom. And it's like, well, if anyone right. should know better, like Joyce yeah. certainly should know better, way better than Dawn should. So, right. Right. um, yeah, pale, creepy guy and, comes to your door. And Buffy's done it. Too, I was just about you know? to go there, too. Like, yeah, you know, like I. I for all I know, Spike has an invite right now, and certainly Angel has had in the past. Sure. Um, at times when Buffy knew better. So does that excuse it? No, but it certainly should buy you a bit of understanding, you know? Right. Um, you know, yes, Dawn should be more careful, but she's hardly the first one of them to make that mistake. Right, you know? right. There's certainly a casting the first stone thing going on here. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, definitely, you know, and I think, you know, among all of that, like, given the fact that there is some immaturity there on Dom's part, certainly, but there's also some enabling and some Mm -hmm. hypocrisy going on Mm -hmm. on Buffy and Joyce's and, um, I mean, the two of them primarily, perhaps, but, you know, just that there's this, there's definitely a tension here, um, that we're seeing kind of right from the beginning between, between these things. And of course, I mean, any teenager who feels like they're not being taken seriously, you know, is bound to act out in some way. Um, right. you know, so. And what teenager has not felt like they're not taken seriously? You know? Well, yeah, sir. And, and I mean, in all fairness, she's kind of not, 
you know what I right. mean? So it's not even just right. feeling that way. It's it's right. that she actually is being treated that way. Um, right, right. It's either Buffy who's expecting too much or everyone else who's maybe not expecting enough. Yeah. So there's there's nobody really does know the real her in that sense. Like nobody's really totally seeing exactly who she is and what she's capable of yeah. at this at except xander who sees her for the woman she really is yeah right <laughs> right with her chocolate smeared there, there, face there, there yeah. may be a bit of the unreliable narrator in yes. in that assessment <laughs> yeah oh. yeah yeah no i and that was good with all her different her little um naive misunderstandings like both of xander and you know, yeah, he, the fact that he sees, uh, you know, he, I mean, some of that's true. Like, you know, Xander treats everyone as an equal, like, well, yeah, like Xander, I mean, if anything, the opposite's true. Xander usually has like an inferiority complex. So, right. Um, right. I, of, <laughs> I love how he's like the smartest and like, he, well, he, yeah. Cause he skipped college, you know, to, to go. So like, yeah, like her, her uh naive interpretation of yeah. you know um you know that that's a sti- that's a sign of of superior status and everything um and uh and and the joke about again witchcraft being a metaphor for you know willow and tara's relationship that like mm-hmm. You know, she wants to be cool. You know, she wants to be a witch like them. And she tells her mom this and her mom gets very serious and tells her to go upstairs. <laughs> um, you know, so because witchcraft must not have been okay with mom's generation. So, um, again, her uh, not quite understanding things on the same level that, you know, mm-hmm. that the adults are understanding them. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think. So what else? Um so so about kind of to to all this whole point like yeah we we still don't really have an explanation of dawn um yeah uh you know that girl you haven't explained well no joss and team have not explained and and you know yeah i i would say be prepared for the fact that we may not get an explanation for some time like this is clearly shaping up it seems I would I think it's not spoilery to say that there's maybe an arc going on here that yeah. we'll learn bits and pieces about Dawn um, as we go along. Um, the the one last thing about her I did want to mention was the the guy who comes up and yes. talks to her, the random crazy guy. Yeah, there were um, a couple things in there that I definitely wanted to talk through. So, yeah. Yeah. So his kind of again, that sort of speaking in riddles, which is usually like a a flag for prophecy or something, you know, like when somebody kind of Mm. is, uh, speaking in poetic metaphor and everything, but he, he mentions the Kurds and way, you know, so there's the connection to, um, uh, Faith's little miss Muffet, Muffet, you know, I was wondering if you picked up Um, on that. I should know better. You pick up on stuff way better than I do. Well, I didn't connect that to Dawn way back then. But once we've talked about that since, yeah, and yeah. so now, yeah, Kurds in a way jumped out to me. Um, so, uh, you know, and I'm not sure what else you wanted to mention from what he said. You know, he has lots of 
you know, ominous things like, you know, the fact that, you know, you don't belong here and all that kind of thing. And she seems sort of shaken up by it. Um, yeah. Which, you know, I would be too if a random stranger came up and said that to well, me. Well, and yeah, so like, I mean, we don't really know who this dude is. I mean, he's he looks maybe homeless, maybe somewhat insane a little bit. Um, he's talking about, you know, that's why I'm a cat, you know, like, right. you know, cats in the cupboard, but they can't find like, you anywhere. Hide in the hurts. walls, yeah. Like, there, there's definitely something going on, like, that there's, you know, we don't we don't know exactly who he is or what's happened to him. And, I mean, I don't, like, he's just a random dude. We're, we're not, like, going to see him again, necessarily. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just, like, you know, the what are you doing here? I know you. You don't belong here. I know what, I know what you are not who you are. So there's Mm -hmm. maybe a clue for you. Uh, Mm. Not much of one, but you know, it's, it's that, it's that idea Mm -hmm. of, um, yeah, like there's some, there's something out of place and, you know, there is this sort of Cassandra esque, you know, Mm. uh, I don't know if I would say prophecy to it, but insight maybe to it, like that there's, that there's something sort of going on here. Um, and yeah, and the Curtin way is definitely a reference to Little Miss Muffet. Um, he's, he says, I, well, he does say, I know you, Curtin way. I know what you are. You don't belong here. So, well, it's that very ominous, you don't belong here. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, what do we make of it? We make of it that it's a crazy guy yelling at a teenager. Um, and apparently he goes away because then... Tara comes out and she's just sort of sitting by herself. So he's not like necessarily a dangerous guy. He's just sort of a crazy, insane guy. Mm -hmm. And that's scary because you don't know what he's going to do, but clearly didn't hurt her in any way. So that's good. Um, Mm -hmm. But we don't know really what, what to make of that yet. Other than that, it does seem to hint at her being, something out of place, out of order. Right. Uh, at least in his crazy guy eyes. Um, I think that should be a song. Crazy guy in, eyes. In crazy guy eyes. Yeah. Um, um, okay. And I... Well, and then just, again, sort of alluding to what, what she says at the end. So kind of kind of an, an oblique reference is... is uh, you know, she's writing at the very end, she says, you know, talking about Buffy, she says, she's, uh, Dawn says, she thinks I'm Little Miss Nobody. So it's almost like Little Miss Muffet, you know, sat on top. Sure, right, uh, right, right. She thinks I'm Little Miss Nobody, just her dumb little sister. Boy, is she in for a surprise. So like, right. yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, you can read that a couple of months away. You know, it's like, oh, well, I'm not just her little sister. I'm you know, I'm a real person. I'm a real girl. <laughs> like, you know, almost mm-hmm. Pinocchio-esque kind of right. like, but like that right. could There's just... There's more to me than what yeah, she that, thinks. Yeah, that could everything. be just like, you know, a statement of self-actualization. Like, it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to mean anything. Or it could totally mean like, I'm not her little sister. There's something way different than right. what anyone expects. Um, and right. And we can't forget that we've been told twice now by both the first slayer in Buffy's dream and by Dracula that like things are going to be different going forward, Mm -hmm. you know? So what does that mean? We thought maybe it meant something for Buffy, but maybe it's not, 
maybe it's mm. something else in Buffy's life. Maybe there's... Well, and it's funny you said the thing about the guy saying, I know what you are, because that's kind of what Buffy was told, like in that, that line that's repeated by Tara and by Dracula, it's both about, you think you know, like, what mm, you are, yeah. you know, and so... This is also true. You know, so there's kind of a, a little bit of a connection there. So maybe what they are has something to do with each other. Right, maybe it's um, maybe they're connected in some way. Right. Certainly. Right. So we've talked like three quarters of our time about Dawn, which is fine. Like, I mean, obviously this episode is about her and yeah. introducing her and, and all of that. So that's not um, inappropriate or anything, but should probably talk a little bit about the other characters um, and and how they relate to Dawn, uh, which we've sure. done a little bit already. But, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we talked a bit about um, Buffy, but, I mean, I think relating to her relationship with Dawn in this kind of, like, very strict adherence, you know, to the rules and everything, you get this very, or at least that's what she's professing. Um and you know, along with that, you get and and we should uh, also new... remember first season Buffy, yeah. who ran out on her watcher and and that's all I mean by professing is I yeah. think Buffy at this point is very interested in rules, but that was not always true. Right. Um, I think there's a a newfound and especially this season we're getting this new kind of. Uh, or or reclaimed adherence to her work ethic, um, you know that this new and improved Buffy. You Buffy, have a work ethic. <laughs> <laughs> do they make an ointment for that? Um, you get this new uh, appreciation for her job. You know, like since having, you know, the events of the last season. Mm-hmm. You know, Buffy is more concerned than ever with training and going about like learning about what her role as slayer is learning about her history and all that and then learning what is her appropriate you know job you know both what she's capable of and what is the right thing to do so Mm -hmm. this very kind of like rule oriented and training oriented way of being um yeah so that's maybe part of the rubbing off on dawn of being even stricter than she normally would be is she's being harder on herself and therefore isn't in the mood for any mistakes from anybody. Um, and yeah. And so we get, uh, you know, the scenes of her training with Giles specifically, um, like it starts with her having like a training session with Giles, which we haven't seen in a long time. Um, I feel like even that was even more of a thing in, in the first couple seasons and it's Mm -hmm. dropped off, you know, in maybe season three or four, um, was their kind of one-on-one training sessions together, which of course Dawn interrupts and screws up her concentration. And and it's, it's in season three that Giles is sort of officially fired from being her watcher. So yeah, like any official... Mm-hmm. Training sessions do sort of stop there, although, I mean, he does continue the to mentor her, her right. throughout season three. Right, but we haven't seen this kind bit. of rigorous, yeah. um, like, physical training 
in the same way. Right. Um, and yeah, so I mean, and again, like just as that's making her maybe harder on Dawn, it's also making her more uh, aware of how hard it is on herself, you know, like so she talks about how Dawn complains about how hard it is to be a kid and all Buffy wants is to be a kid. Now she says that, of course, you know that if anybody treated Buffy like a kid, she wouldn't right. stand for it. So I think there's a slight unawareness there of well, how she actually would react, maybe, but certainly I think she's she's again lamenting the fact that she hasn't had the normalcy that other people you know mm-hmm. there there's a longing there for just to have a simple a, you know a simple childhood a simple relationship with her mom who could just take care of her like moms usually do without right. her having to be the one who takes care of everybody so yeah and right and Riley sort of points out the uh opposing factors uh, yeah. of of that um and also and and there's you know a bit of dawn sort of undercutting buffy's kind of new renewed vigor in her mission um mm. ooh, killing things with wood oh scary vampire they die with a splinter you know like right. like very much uh very much a kid sister thing to say like the thing that's important and and legitimately so i mean it is mm. You know, vampires are scary, which I think Dawn comes to find out by the end of the episode, you know, that, you know, it is more than just, uh, you know, poking them with a splinter kind of thing. But but she does have this this attitude of, yeah, like what she does isn't really that big of a deal. And like even even like criticizing her for not wearing a costume or a mask, you know, to hide Mm -hmm. the identity, um, you know, to protect her loved ones. It's like I would do that. Like, you know there's this there's this right. criticism but like also at the same time sort of undercutting um the uh severity i guess of what it is buffy does so mm-hmm. um yeah definitely from their two perspectives like you get this idea and and again like it's not so different necessarily from how buffy viewed things a few a few years ago, a few seasons ago, um, except for the fact that Buffy could be flippant, but she still had the super strength and right. reflexes and whatever to take care of any to evil back it up. Yeah, that yeah. came by, whereas Dawn doesn't, and that right. that seems. I mean, that's really the key difference, I guess, or one of the key mm-hmm. differences that you know. Yeah, Buffy can sort of be offhand about it because when she needs it, she can draw on her strength, but Dawn simply yeah. can't. Um, right. At least as far as we know to As far this as point. we know, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess finishing up with, like, Buffy and Riley, too. Um, again, with that... Uh, committed work ethic you get the moment of uh buffy not remembering that she made plans with riley Mm, so not mm. not a big deal is made of it but a little deal is made of it you know i think in a in a friendly enough way riley makes it fairly clear that 
he certainly didn't forget, you know, so right. they don't really, it doesn't ever really become a fight, but there is that kind of suggestion there that um, Buffy is uh, crowding things out in order to make room for this new sort of training sure. regime. Sure. And not just Riley, but like she gives up the class She's changed, yeah, right. And, she's rearranging her classes. And and, and it's yeah. not just even like, oh, I gave up a class. It's one that she was going to specifically take with Willow. So there's, right. you know, similar to kind of maybe crowding right. Riley out a little, she's also crowding, crowding one of her best friends out a little bit. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And like, I mean, like Giles says, like, you know, if anyone understands, like, Riley's going to understand the importance of training. But mm-hmm. that doesn't, I mean, when you have a significant other and maybe mm-hmm. are paying more attention to something else than them, there may be shifts in relationships that occur because of that kind of thing. So, you know, I'm right, not right. suggesting that that's necessarily the case here, but I'm just saying like, no, those sorts fair. of things happen, you know, and, yeah. and, and the fact that it's not just Riley, but Willow as well. And, yeah. You know, and it's affecting her family life, her too. Her family, right. Um, yeah. Like, there are at least <laughs> warning signs there, especially coming off a season where the entire season was about drifting apart, you know. Right, And right. now it's like we're at the beginning of the next season, and has she really learned anything if, right. if she's cutting like, people out, you know, to do her Slayer stuff? It's almost like potentially the same problem but for the opposite reasons like rather than there being no uh thing that's holding them all together now it's like potentially Buffy is so focused on the slaying that there's no room for anything else Mm -hmm. you know um or these other relationships could suffer as a consequence so you could end up kind of reversing the whole thing but you know uh, be in the same danger of yeah alienating those friends all over yeah you have there's a um, a pendulum swing going on perhaps right. um right and and so yeah like i mean you know opening opening this episode of course is buffy you know trying basically doing these like balancing routines and so mm. you know is this is this going to become a thing of like about balance and like maintaining, you know, what is the proper amount of, of both, you know, it's like, we know that the thing that has made her strong from the beginning is being a slayer with friends and family. So, Mm -hmm. you know, last season, again, we, we had this drifting away from her friends and family this season. Again, like, is it, is it the same thing going to happen just from a different side of things? So mm-hmm. who, who knows? I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to lead us down a particular path or anything. I'm just right. pointing out these potentialities. Cause that's. And I think worth noting too, and we'll see if this metaphor holds further into the season, but what is it that throws off her balance? It's Dawn. It's, it's yeah. her balance is perfect until Dawn fiddles with the little crystals and they fall over and the whole thing falls. So, you know, potentially we're looking at a metaphor there. Maybe not, but, you know, 
I think yeah, and maybe that's worth keeping and not, the eye on. Not even just that Dawn like fiddles with the crystals, but she tries to balance one on top of the others. And that's right. what and it's and it's that kind of it's just one too many things. Right. You know, it's that one added element that then the whole card house falls down. So whole crystal is, is house. Dawn yeah. that <laughs> house of cards. Is Dawn that added thing which is too much? You know? I don't know. We'll see. Um but, uh, so jumping off of the training sessions, mm-hmm. um, we get a few interesting things with Giles. Um, yes. This episode, um, we get the kind of last uh, uh, little uh, throws of his sort of midlife crisis that he was going through. That he has this this sports car. Um, right, which right. It's it seduced me all red and sporty. Um, you know, so he's kind of, you know, complaining about, but also proud of it at the same time. You know, he kind of is annoyed at it, but he also wants to show it off. Um, Oh, well, I hasn't seen my car. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, but more important than that is this other purchase that he makes, which is the magic shop. Mm. Um, you know, which seems like, like you said, we're primed for, this is the new sort of library gathering place which we've been lacking um which can be that kind of neutral area where everybody can get together and you know work as a team um but also provides giles with that thing that he needs that's for him that it's not just him waiting you know for the next training session but he can continue his work um and have stuff to do, have a place to research, have a source of income, all the things that he, you know, has not had in the past year. Mm. So, um, you know, kind of interesting little setup there, although notably also a potentially dangerous investment. Um, This is a frequently attacked, um, you know, uh, business and has a, you know, fairly high death rate, apparently, which is why it comes so cheap. So, <laughs> yeah, what there's the line we get that, you know, was it magic shop owners are like have the life expectancy of a spinal, spinal tap, tap drummer? drummer. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I love a good spinal tap reference, so yeah, sure. And, um, the, the, I don't, I don't know. Let's see, we had several um several people who are who are own owners of uh the magic shop that get killed i don't know how many of them we see we've seen um i think we get like references to like there's like i think spike kills one in season mm. two at one point. And then obviously Mr. Bogarty here. I want to say there's at right. least one other one that we kind of know right. about, but like, yeah, like there's this, it, it's kind of one of those things where it's just like, yeah, like alluded to over, right. over time. But um, yeah. Anyway, so pretty funny reference there, but yeah, like clearly, I mean, we saw how many times the library got invaded in like mm-hmm. the two seasons primarily two seasons, I guess three seasons where they were there. Right. Um, but 
like this seems like yeah they're kind of upping the annual it's like downtown and we already know mm-hmm. that like the vampires kind of like to hang around lurk and downtown. like lurk yeah. downtown yeah and stuff so just kind well, of and this is the place where the bad guys are going to go every time they need anything like a right. magical talisman of some sort you know ingredients for their spells books of magic all that stuff this is going to be like a big bullseye for you know magical looting and everything so um i think we can expect a few break-ins in the next in the next season but yeah um definitely yeah i mean if it's like you you would almost want to go to the most mundane Right. thing if you were really concerned about it but right. but like it right. appears but it also has all the things that giles needs too it right. has all of his resources which is part of the appeal yeah yeah absolutely and and apparently rather profitable if you can live long enough to right. enjoy the profits right like it's right. not you know i mean what if we get a reference um I want to say it was Jenny who was buying some kind of whatever. And the owner at that time was like, oh, yeah, you know, I sold one of those as like a paperweight. You know, it's like, you know, like you right. you get these like and of course it's, you know, this is Southern California. So maybe not all that surprising <laughs> that you would have like people who are interested in this, you know, sort of maybe like new agey looking type things that are right, you know, that are whatever. But also you get the sense that they have. The sort of like touristy tchotchkes, like, you know, cheap ceramic unicorns that probably cost less than a dollar to make that they're selling for $12.95, you know, and and that kind of thing. So, you know, there's kind of there's kind of the like legitimate magic stuff, which probably does cost a pretty penny, but also like the overpriced, you know, cheap stuff that Mm -hmm. has a fairly high margin. So uh, lots of lots of potential there. But yeah, you know. Definitely as like a purveyor, this puts Giles back into sort of a position of having access to books and knowledge and inventory and um, and even in sort of a more legitimate way than the high school library ever did. Because like we even saw before where like, you know, they were carting like his books out because why would you have books on demonology in a high school library? Um, now this makes perfect sense why he would have those yeah nobody can tell him he can't have a book of demonology here yeah um Um. so yeah yeah um yeah no i and and of course i mean now it also kind of puts it 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 makes you know a, a much easier place a much more sort of natural place for them all to meet you know you're not worried about oh we're crowding giles's living room and apartment Mm -hmm. you know or whatever uh and all of that so yeah and it's not on school grounds where xander feels out of place or giles or whatever so right yeah um speaking of xander sure and anya um they come to uh babysit dawn Mm. um and uh yeah we talked about Dawn's uh little crush on Xander and everything and sure. you know um and he kind of takes it in stride he is that kind of goofy big brother type um but to her it's not goofy it's like sophisticated humor mm-hmm. and everything like his joke about <laughs> they put bre- they put cheese on bread and it's really going to take off and all that kind of yeah. thing um <laughs> I'm going to play with matches run with scissors take candy yeah. from some guy I don't know his name yeah. yeah um and 
And Anya, too. I mean, we have to talk about her. You know, of course she comes over, hello, little girl. So, right. you know, Dawn immediately is going to love as her. As condescending as possible. Yeah. But, yeah. like, obliviously um, trying so. Trying way too hard. Yeah. Well, yeah, as with everything. Like, she just yeah. doesn't have the social, cues, the social yeah. mannerisms of, yeah, yeah, what's going on. Um, Yeah, and, uh, you know, it is the the great... Uh, moment when she's playing life and you know I need to read the quote here that she says oh crap now I'm burdened with a husband and several tiny pink children I have more cash than I can reasonably manage and Xander says that means you're winning <laughs> right cash equals like yeah like more children and cash and a husband than you can possibly handle means you're doing pretty well um like almost like misery equals winning like feeling like all these things are a burden to you you know you yeah. must be doing pretty well this is what everyone aspires to um i i, I noticed that says, you tweeted part of that too but the can i trade I, the children in <laughs> yeah i did tweet the can i trade in the children for more cash yeah. because as soon as she learns she's winning then that's all she needs to hear right um and it isn't really about an understanding of why a husband and children might mean that she's winning. It's more a sense of what's the best, like what's the best deal I can make to advance my position. So if I'm winning, okay, well how about if I trade in these children and have more Mm -hmm. cash? Am I winning even more now? Like again, (laughs) that very transactional, like no real social understanding of why she's winning. Just like, Okay, cash equals good, mm-hmm. you know, so. Um, yeah, she's very funny. But very sincere in her desire to trade in the children. and oh, yeah. Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but also yeah. don't want to, don't want to overlook the fact that one, like you, like you mentioned earlier, Anya comes to Don's defense. Um, yeah. Later, you know, in front of Buffy. And um, when Don runs out, actually she runs out to try to save her, you know, which is yeah. perhaps the first time we've actually seen Anya take an interest in any a other person. Um, yeah. I'm trying, I mean, I, I say that sort of tongue in cheek. I, I mean, it, was there a time when she sort of maybe tried to do something for Xander? I guess, I mean, other than just like come back to town, but like, even then she's like I trying mean, to get him gone. to. she's gone. She's worried about him and she's gone like looking for him when he's yeah. been in trouble. The, the, but the only... but certainly it's the first time I think of anyone besides Xander that she's shown that kind of Yeah. Uh, that I would definitely for. agree. Yeah. I, the only other sort of example, like other than just sort of funny little things that I can think of, is in Where the Wild Things Are, when she sort of yeah. is chopping her way through Yeah, to she help. goes back into the house. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um that that was the one that was coming to my mind too. Yeah. Um, um, and also, is it fear itself when she knows they're <laughs> in the house and she goes looking for right? But even then, child. it's like she's not. She doesn't quite can't at that point. She can't quite do it on her own. Like she right. does go to get. Well, Giles at that point, and... it's still concern, but she'll get right. someone else to actually do the right. rescuing. Like um, you know, versus now where. 
And, and I think you can look at these as a progression because that came before Where the Wild Things Are. So yeah. you can look at these as a progression of, you know, her actively now showing concern for someone not only other than herself, but other than herself and Xander. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, she does run out and, and gets hurt. And um, fortunately for her, gets knocked back into the house so that she can't also be taken, but right. is, you know at least is to the point where she's actively put herself in harm's way to try to save Don. And um, mm-hmm. so, I mean, I think, I think that's significant. Like I, I you know, it, we can kind of make fun of Anya and, and laugh at her sort of burgeoning capitalism and, you know, however you want to look at that. But, but at the same time, like I do think there, there actually is some, um, growth in character going on there with her too so uh and and also like in that defense of of dawn there is there is some of that you know empathy that we talked about and and i want to talk a little bit you know because and and we haven't talked about willow and terry yet so maybe a little bit after them about the the odd parts of the couples like if if we're considering Mm -hmm. like the scoobies and then the Scooby couples, like there, yeah. there's almost this divide sort of happening here that I want to talk about a little bit too. I know we're right. over time, but this is, yeah. I think a good a episode, episode yeah. and an important one to talk through. Um, yeah. So no, that's true. I mean, you talked about, we have Riley kind of defending, um, Dawn. I think Xander and Anya both defend Dawn, but you're right. You do get Anya specifically, going out of her way to try to protect her as well. Um, and then, yeah, like, Willow seems to have a, you know, positive relationship with Dawn. Like, Donna says, like, you know, she's the nicest person, and she feels a kinship with her that they both like school a lot. So, mm-hmm. you know, and that kind of sets them apart. Um, but even more so than with Willow, you get that more personal connection with, Tara, um, who seems to kind of go out of her way to understand how Dawn is feeling and to, like, check up on her, too. Like, she goes outside to make sure that she's okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And they thumb wrestle. They thumb wrestle. Like, she thinks of something to take their mind off it so that they're not just sitting out there waiting. Mm -hmm. And then she's, like, you know, thinking about it, even when they're not with her, she's talking to Tara or to Willow about, um, she's worried about her and feels like they should include Dawn more. Um, even more than she feels like she needs to be included. Um, right. She's more concerned about, uh, Dawn being sort of outside the group. Yeah. Um, And, and, I, I want to point out, too, like, so you get this very clear language. I mean, Tara certainly more so than than either Riley or Anya specifically. Um, you know, when Tara comes out and talks to Don, you get this language from her of, you know, it's best that non-Scoobies like us stay outside. Mm-hmm. So you, you definitely get that hint. I mean, it's not much of a hint. It's kind of outright stating it, right. you know, um, from Tara that, that she does still feel like an outsider. And... Mm-hmm. And we know that, like, it took a while for her to sort of be introduced to the group. And and right. even, like, the first time when she's introduced to Buffy, it's not Buffy, it's Faith. And, you right, know, she right. but she's the one who picks up on it and all that. But 
but the sense that like even through all that even through you know sort of the the events of of you know leading up to the finale and then you know last last episode in this season that she's still not quite feeling it and and her mm-hmm. description to willow and and her try, her attempt to explain to willow and it's it's interesting to me how willow of all people is sort of oblivious to right. the outside <clears throat> outside feelings that tara is feeling given that you know willow was very much an outsider in her own like high school experience and whatever right. and so like you you know you kind of have to wonder like is that is that just because she's not used to being on the inside of something or is that just is that just a natural effect of being on the inside of a group like you know being part of a core group regardless right. of what it is and it may not even be intentional it just might be an effect of that dynamic and and as Tara says it's you know you guys have this really tight bond it's hard to break into that and i'm not even sure i want to and and you're not like i i think I think the most powerful part of that coming from Tara is that it's not a criticism. It's not, it's not like she's saying you have this really tight bond and I really wish I could be part of it. And I really feel left out of things. It's you have this tight bond and, and I'm glad you have that because people need to have those tight bonds and it's not something that I want to break up. It's not something that I want to break into. It's, Mm -hmm. it's, but it is something that, like, I have to acknowledge exists. Right. And, and, and it does make her feel like an outsider in that way. And that the fact, again, that is that, it, that it's not a criticism. It's just an observation. But to Willow, it kind of feels like it is a criticism a bit. And, right. right, because for Willow, I think it would be hard for Willow to ever be at peace with being that outsider. Because sure. that's something that she... I think historically maybe hasn't struggled with more than Tara, but like she struggled with coming to terms with it more. Mm -hmm. Like I think Tara knows what it's like to be an outsider, Mm -hmm. but she does seem more comfortable with that, that that's not necessarily a judgment on anybody. And she doesn't necessarily feel, uh, you know, she's not reacting like Dawn or like Harmony do of like, you know, people aren't respecting me the way I just, she just sort of recognizes it as a fact. Um, Whereas, yeah, for Tara, or for Willow, I keep mixing their names (laughs) up, for Willow, to feel outside would be to feel hurt and insecure, that those things just go together and she can't quite understand Right. And, um, and I think it's, I think it's a difference. I just sort of occurred to me when, when you were talking there that it's like maybe a difference of being outside versus being left out. Like there's, mm. you know, like it's fine to be outside and it's fine to be inside. Like that's sort of Tara's right. approach to it. But for Willow, it definitely would feel like if you're outside, it means you're, it's because you're left out. Some, you're locked out. And there's out. Some, must be something wrong with right. you, you know, or, or people are excluding you for some reason. Right. So. Um, so yeah. And that's, again, that's not to say that it's a good thing or a bad thing one way or the other. I mean, like, like we talked about with Buffy and sort of how her, uh, exclusionary, uh, actions are sort of affecting the people that she loves or whatever. Like, 
there's also a sense of that, like in a in a different format of the Scoobies and the quote non Scoobies or secondary, you know, tier of Scoobies, if you want to mm. call it that. Like that there's that there is maybe, you know, Riley who's kind of kind of being left out, but then like called upon when like Buffy needs to rant. <laughs> like it's it's not right. even like she necessarily needs him to patrol. It's like he's only there to listen to her rant about things. Um, and then, you know, same thing with like, you know, kind of Tara. It's like she's there and, you know, she's smart and capable and can be useful. Mm-hmm. But like also the fact that she goes outside and sits with Don, it's like they don't actually need her inside, it seems. So, you know, and I mean, again, like Anya and Xander maybe is less than those other two, but, you mm-hmm. know, we've already gotten that sort of sense from Anya in the past that like, she's actually not all that interested in being a Scooby per se, like that, that she's perfectly fine to let Xander do his Scooby thing. And she kind of hangs out with them, but. And that goes along with her, um, up until now, sort of more reserved attitude, like her lack of concern with the others. It's that she, until now, she really only cared about Xander. So part of the not wanting to break into the group is just kind of an apathy about it. Like she didn't care all that much about making, becoming really close with the others. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, now we'll see if that starts to change as she becomes a bit more, uh, you know, selfless in her attitude towards some of the others. Um, Or at least aware. Or at least, well, and the other thing that, may or may not be noteworthy on that theme too, is that I noticed Amber Benson is not in the main credits. Um, whereas, mm. uh, uh, Anya, Anya is, mm-hmm. and so is Dawn. Mm. Um, and Tara is not. So I, whether that's noteworthy or not, I don't know. Just kind of jumped out to me, um, True. on this watch. Um, um, the the one other thing um well i don't know i guess so yeah like i i I think you know and again i don't want to you know we're only two episodes into the season so i don't want to make like too much that like there's like that this is going to be like another big rift you know or whatever in the season but i do i do want to make sure that we're pointing out that like there are these there are these sort of competing tensions between you know, the, the Slayer and her friends and also like the Scoobies on sort of a larger scale and the Mm -hmm. non Scooby people. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. Well, the last thing I think we need to touch on for at least a, a minute or two before we leave Buffy is Harmony and her minions. Yes. Um, and as you kind of said, I, I mean, I have a fair amount of notes for them, but it's not because what they do is all that important. It's more just because they're fun. Um, right. So maybe there's not... They are kind of the the monster of the week in the sense that they're the threat. Mm-hmm. You know, but clearly we're familiar with Harmony and vampires and how they work, so they don't take a whole lot of explaining. Um, they're less important than what's going on with Dawn, I think, this week. Mm. But um, 
But Harmony's fun. Um, <laughs> Harmony is fun. She's she's really great. Um, uh, yeah, no, I just have no complaints. She's very entertaining. Um, I, I love that, like, all right, so she gets this group together, apparently on the promise, like, we don't see the actual formation of the group, but apparently on the promise that she has a plan to kill the Slayer. Hmm. And then her plan is to go out in front of her house and yell. And throw a rock through the window. Yeah. Like, that's the big plan. You know, this is this is how we're going to get the Slayer. We're going to go yell and tell her to come outside. Well, I, I'd like to know how many times the words, the plan, get stated in this episode. Oh, because yeah. Because it just, it got funnier and funnier every time, you right. know. Like, by the end, and that kind of self-justifying logic at the end. Like, like, well, can the plan be to eat her? No. Why not? Because it's not the plan. Like, right. like the plan is just this platonic right. ideal of of Harmony's power and authority over... Yeah. It's the only thing holding any sort of authority over these vampires, you know? And by the end, when they rebel, you realize she actually has no authority at all. The only authority she has is this repeated statement of the plan. Right. Um and and so. when it turns well, so and that's even like at that point, it's not even her plan anymore because it's not until she's talking to Spike and he's like, "Oh, let me guess your plan." Lays out this plan yeah. that is is so funny. Like it's it's funny because it's you know cliche and it's you yeah. know everyone like everyone tries it and it never works and you know right. that kind of thing. You know the hero always comes and saves the day, and then as soon as he leaves, Harmony is like okay, new plan. Like exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what they do is what Spike just said. But then that is, is so the yeah, stupid yeah. and cliche that right. it's better than whatever she had planned right. you know, next. Right. Um, so yeah, no, it's just, so yeah, it turns out not even to be her plan and it's not a good plan. And when the others start calling her out on it, that it's not a good plan, you know? Yeah, you're right. Like she doesn't actually have any authority and there's this, you know, and, and sort of the whole, um, you know, the, the, the language of like self-actualization and, and mm. stuff that she uses is, you know, funny, but also I, I kind of think, you know, just in theme of like with Dawn and talking mm-hmm. about her, um, you know, being, you know, someone who isn't taken seriously, like yeah. Harmony is kind of the perfect villain for that too yeah. because yeah. no one does take her seriously and in fact she does actually kind of turn out to be somewhat dangerous i mean not mm-hmm. certainly not unstoppable but you know we see that compared with the last time she and xander fought she's doing a lot better and right. for what it's worth she has managed to cobble a group of vampires like she is yeah a ringleader as funny as that sort of sounds and you know right. you can get buffy hysterical laughter until you realize that she has access to the house. And she then it's the actually house, yeah. not that funny that, yeah. you know, she does have that access and thing. And I'll point out, Harmony is not dead. No. She doesn't die in that final no. fight. All of her minions die. But no, no. In she fact, doesn't. Buffy's attack sort of saves her. You know, right. she's kind of about to be, you know, overthrown by the minions mm-hmm. um, when, when Buffy turns up and takes care of them for her. Yeah. So, yeah, she, she's still sort of out there and bearing a grudge, I think. So, you know, um, in, in her own way, Harmony is as much a survivor as Spike, as funny as that yeah. even might seem. You know, like, there's there's this 
and and I mean, obviously, there's sort of reasons why they get paired together, you know, at certain times or whatever. But um, it is kind of a funny, funny thing. But also, you know, you realize that she lives. She she's undead for another day, you know, so to speak. Right. Um, right. So yeah, I, I love that. I have to make all the hard decisions, and it's hard. Like, you yeah. know, that, that just yeah. the wine, like she's complaining that to wine. Don, to her captive, right. you know, about how hard it is to be a leader. And, right. And in a way there's a Buffy parallel there yeah. of, of it's hard to be the leader who has to like, who has all tell the responsibility. everyone what to do. And yeah. Yeah. You know, well, I, everyone, everyone's a critic, you know, I actually wasn't um, really thinking about that this time around, but you're right. There is, there is sort of a Buffy-esque you know to the wine whiny rant yeah like it's in a way she kind of reflects how kind of you know uh, both dawn and buffy's complaints in this episode about Mm -hmm. you know not being taken seriously and you know but at the same time being the person who has to decide everything yeah um, um, and there's nothing so, better yeah. than Harmony saying, so Slayer, at last we meet. <laughs> and yeah. Buffy like, we've met Harmony, you halfwit. Uh, it's fun. Yeah. Good stuff, good stuff. All right. No, I like her. I'm being sarcastic or whatever. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's very funny. Um, All right. Definitely. Well, I look forward to seeing her yeah, for it's, the first time again at some point. It's not shocking to think that we will see Harmony again. I mean, yeah. and again, like, I mean, she, I will spoil it and say she is not the big bad of the season. Right. Um, but I mean, I don't, and I don't even remember honestly when exactly we see her again, but you know, I mean, it's not a surprise to think that we will. Yeah. So, all right. Well, all right. we've gone way over. Way over. So, uh, Let's talk about some Doctor Who. Let's. Hmm. Uh-huh. Um, oh, yeah, so I'm supposed to start. Um, I had a few short little production things just to kick us off. Um, I mentioned this to you off air, I guess, but um, this episode is by Mark Gatiss. Um, and this is actually my favorite Mark Gatiss episode, so mm-hmm. we'll see whether... Um, you, I mean, that's not, that's not saying a ton, I don't think his episodes are terrible. They're not my favorites. You know, I feel like he writes kind of, you know, middling. Like, they're sort of competently done, but very rarely is the Mark Gatiss episode my favorite of the season. Um, sure. But but this one, for me, is the best that he's done. So I actually like this one a lot. Um, and, I mean... You noticed as soon as you started watching, and we can talk about the fact that it is sort of the the Doctor Light for the season. Yeah, um, although although I although when I texted as you as much as I, some I, other because I had lights. started watching it, and then as is my want, I fell asleep <laughs> the first time because I almost always start watching the next episode right after we're recording, and it's late yeah, at night. It's like um, midnight, and and so I actually I fell asleep, and I didn't realize like a minute after that point where i fall asleep is like when the, when we up. see that the doctor is you know this monster in this room or whatever so it's like i text you i'm like oh this is dr light episode and then like if i literally watched like another 45 seconds right. i would have seen that right. it's like from then on the doctor's in the rest of the episode so He's it's in, yeah so it's not it's not quite blink but it's right. definitely lighter than you know right some some other episodes um and i wanted to 
mention too, just in terms of the the writing that Mark Gatiss did, that um, a few different inspirations for this episode. One is that he wrote uh, these roles specifically for Diana Rigg um, and uh, for Rachel Sterling, who plays Ada, who's actually Diana Rigg's real life daughter. Um, oh, okay. So he had, I think, he'd worked with Rachel Sterling on on in a play, and he knew Diana Rigg just from being sure. British actors together. So kind of Taylor made the roles for them. Um, and also uh, his kind of famous love of just everything seedy Victorian, you know, so all the like, you know, gothic, uh, you know, penny dreadful uh, type stuff, which we can certainly talk about. So maybe that's why this one, well, I'm going to take that back. I'm not going to say that's why this one works because almost every Mark Gatiss episode includes something he's nostalgic about. So I don't think that's all that unusual. <laughs> sure. Um, whether it's, you know, Dickens or, you know, uh, 1950s TV or whatever. Um, but uh, anyway, I think that can maybe lead us into where we wanted to start, which was that kind of Victorian setting and everything. Yeah, well, and I mean, obviously, this isn't the first time we've been in a Victorian setting yep. for Doctor Who, um, and and not even the first time this this companion. Anyway, right. I, I guess I guess it's a season because yeah, I keep forgetting that like this is sort of a mid season companion replacement. Right. Um, right. So yeah, we've had we've had Victorian and not just Victorian setting, but we've we've had specifically with the Paternoster gang and, uh -huh. um, and Clara and all this stuff. And, and we're reminded of that very explicitly um, with Jenny sort of bringing up the fact that, Hey, you never explained like what is going on yeah. here with Clara and isn't she dead? And no, it's complicated. The doctor keeps saying it. Um, yeah. I remember at the end of the snow, it ends the snowmen with them at Clara's grave. And then he kind of, um, notices her name that uh, right. the, the name rings the bell um, and then he sort of without explaining to Jenny and Vastra gets really excited and runs off so like the last they saw was him running off to go do something or other you know right. so it's sort of picking up for them yeah and we don't I mean we don't know I guess how long it's been for them um, presumably not terribly long right um I mean, at least the fact that they still remember who Clara is and, like, right. they don't, any of them look very much older. <laughs> um, right. You know, that's all, that's all well and good. Also, yeah, you mentioned, you brought up the, the Penny Dreadful feel. So there's, mm -hmm. you know, the Crimson Horror. It, like, totally mm -hmm. can see that as, like, a Penny Dreadful, yeah. you know, yeah. novel title with some, like, you know, I can see, like, sort of the Frankenstein-esque doctor, yeah. you know, on the cover and, like, maybe some woman, like, screaming up at him or something right, right. um but also just i mean and and we've talked about with the paternoster gang and like vastra sort of being like inspiration for uh arthur conan doyle's uh right. sherlock holmes there's also that idea too of like um what, what is it the scarlet uh uh study in scarlet uh mm -hmm. which is is you know the home story there so like you know the same kind of like themes yeah. there where 
I mean, right. obviously, there's a, there's a mystery that needs to be solved. Right. And everything. Um, yeah. But also, also, I like how they throw in like with the flashbacks, like that sort of old timey, um, uh-huh. uh, silent movie feel of you know that is very sort of jerky and uh, whatever. But it it has that that feel of like, you know, I mean, because very late Victorian, you know, they were starting to have movies, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. So, uh, also kind of gets that feel into it as well. And, and this is very late Victorian. I think 1893 is the year. So, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, pretty, pretty close to the turn of the 20th century. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Sorry. No, no, go ahead. Finish. I I was just going to say, even, and we can talk, you know, uh, more about each of these things, perhaps individually in characters. Um, you know, you get Thursday, you know, who's this uh, uh, Victorian gentleman, I guess. But like, I, you know, he, he's, he's, he's got this uh, penchant for fainting, you know, at all of the yeah. different characters uh, in situation, shocking. anything yeah. that shocks him, um, which is, you know, obviously like very much a, a gender swap sort of stereotype mm-hmm. from, you know, the hysterical woman who faints at, you know, being right. uh, unduly surprised at, you know, the slightest thing or whatever. Um, right. But the... Right. And kind of a continuation of the joke of the snowman of, like, I'm the lizard woman from the dawn of time and this is my wife. You know, like... Right. You know, um, all the things that would shock, you know... A Victorian gentleman. A Victorian, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, yeah, and then... And then, you know, even with, like, um, Mrs. Gillyflower and Ada, I mean, you have, so you have, like, Mrs. Gillyflower, who's this, you know, revival preacher, and, uh, you know, and there were these sorts of revivals going on, not mm-hmm. just in England, per se, but, you know, through, in various places, um, you know, and these sort of, like, not just that, but, like, these sort of experimental colonies, you know, of, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, I mean, colony, maybe not even be the right word, like, um, communes and, you know, like these, these different places going on where, you know, they were sort of thinking that they were living in the end times. And so, you know, they needed to, to band together and, and only the chosen would be, um, go, you know, able to go into these sort of little communities and stuff. Um, and, and sort of the horrific, you know, things that happened to Ada, you know, as a youngster, but then also kind of using her uh, disability to also help promote this, what you think is (laughs) initially sort of a religious thing, but then it turns out to be much more sinister, you know, than that. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. To me, um, one of the most, maybe the most interesting thing about, the Victorian just sort of period generally is that like bipolar ness mm-hmm. of it, you know, yeah. as much as any other era, if not the most, it's like defined by those extremes of, you know, the most, what we think of as the most kind of wholesome, you know, upright English values, you know, tight corseted, you know, the, the, the tables, I remember learning this in Victorian English in college, the tables, you know, table legs had to be covered with tablecloths because table legs were suggestive, you know, that like, you know, you sure. can't get, you know, uh, 
more prudish than the Victorian era, but underneath that, and maybe because of that, you have this undercurrent of, it was also the height of prostitution and, right. you know, and it's famous for its, its serial killers and it's, you know, and it's really, you know, cheap sensational literature that was like all the rage at the time, you know, that people just ate this stuff up. Um, you know, and you have a time when, I guess, economic prosperity and the middle class are growing, but you also, it's the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, away from the idyllic, you know, agrarian, rural time, you're moving into factories and mills and canals and, like, smoke and polluted water and all this stuff. So it's this very, like you know, I guess just bipolar is the word I think of, you know, that's kind of yeah. what characterizes the era. So I like that, um, where we've had, I feel like we've had a few Victorian episodes before, like you mentioned snowmen and, you know, the unquiet dead. Um, mm. and, but they've all, um, you know, even like the next doctor too, for me have all been that more, Christmas Carol Victorian. It's Dickens Victorian. Sure. It's like, or the the Happy Dickens Victorian. You know, of like, it's snowing. It's Christmas time. It's about family and you know, uh, redemption and all these good things. This is not that. This is like the seedy Victorian. This is the real Victorian culture, which is underneath that the nice Victorian culture kind of likes to pretend isn't really there. Um, you know, so I like the way this just totally embraces all that, um, and goes for, like, a lot of really, like, yeah, like, despicable, evil characters, really kind of sick humor, um, like, it's really gross in some points, um, and, and even the fact that they move it up to Yorkshire instead of down in London, and it's set in the North, which was sort of the seat of the British Industrial Revolution. You know, that's where all the, like, big factories and mills were sort of based. Um, and it was kind of where all that landscape got sort of ruined before the country really set about trying to preserve it to make sure that didn't happen everywhere. Mm. Um, you know, so the fact that they move it up, and I like the way Strax says, like, He's going to recommend all the stuff that they need, like the grenades and the, you know, acid and everything. And remember, we're going to the north as if like, you know, going up there, you know, it, it's way more dangerous than anybody. Like they're, they're they're crazy up there. So we better be prepared. Um, right. Uh, right. Yeah. And, and I guess you said about Gilly Flowers, like utopian sort of commune you know her preying on that fear of the time on that prudery and that that wish to be sort of deemed holy and righteous and and you know that fear of judgment that was going around you know and she totally you know capitalizes on that to get you know her sort of victims for her like utopian society and everything so yeah um, yeah i like the way that this episode sort of uses that time in that setting 
Um, yeah, no, definitely. And, and, you know, you brought up, you know, I mean, the first thing that came to mind when you were talking about the sort of dichotomy there, the, the bipolarness of it, as you mentioned, is, you know, Jack the Ripper, like, yeah. was right in the middle of that. And then you brought yeah. up prostitution and serial killers. Well, there you go. You there know, you they're, go. <laughs> they're, they're both together, you know, yeah. and this, this idea that, yeah, like, you do, you know, when you think Victorian, you do think very proper and, you know, yeah. Whatever, but it is this time of. I mean, obviously, in order for there to be be a serial killer of prostitutes, you have to have enough of them to be a lot of prostitutes, you know yeah. killed. So right. and and right. and you have this this return to this revivalist attitude. But what's that in reaction to Darwinism is is taking off? And so at the same time as you have this increased awareness of evolution and and the kind of you know, then the the public reaction is, no, we have to cling to our traditional understanding of how, you know, the world was made and how everything works. So, again, it's those two things which are, it's because of those extremes that they're reacting against each other, mm. that you get such a wide swing of things, I guess. Sure. And even, you know, even things like, you know, people talk about, oh, you know, with with the internet, you know, things like pornography and that kind of stuff is around. Well, there's plenty of Victorian porn <laughs> that was created. Okay. Like, I mean, there, there were, you know, it was a new era of photography and, mm. and there are certainly, I mean, of course now with the internet, you can see it a lot easier perhaps, you yeah. know, and literally you can see Victorian porn a lot easier perhaps than, you know, they right. could even back then. But, you know, those types of things, like there, there were all these, undercurrents and and i mean it is easy to sort of think that like you know one era is worse than the other i mean it may not have necessarily been worse than any other era. like there certainly have always been murder yeah. and pornography and of some variety and and you know prostitution or whatever but it is i think i think like you said like it is that it's notable because of the the dichotomy between the sort of the ideals there um mm -hmm. that at least have come down to think of you know victorian times right. um versus the actuality of it and so you get this yeah you get this i mean there really is i mean when you think about it it's like okay great like clara was saved Mm -hmm. But, like, how many people ended up, like, dying in this whole, like, experiment <laughs> yeah. and were, right. like, just, like, right. tossed into the river and, like, right. you know, right. I mean, there there is kind of a really grisly aspect to it when mm -hmm. you really start to think about just sort of the sheer numbers of people involved in, and, yeah, you know, and the, the amount of time that it took for her to do all this. Right, and <clears> the doctor <throat> was only survived because of his alien status. So, right. like, the fact, his different biology, so all the other rejects just got dumped into the canal. And he says he was there for, I don't know, days or weeks, you know, a long time. Yeah, he doesn't have any idea, like, yeah. how long he was actually there. So there's... It's, it's it's funny, I just wanted to mention this, it's funny you brought up the, like, uh, pornography and everything, because um, I know you have stopped watching Penny Dreadful, right? Which is a show which is yes. on right now. Um, Starring Rose Tyler. I mean... Starring Rose Tyler. Um, although they've taken her accent away in the second season. I thought you'd be interested oh, did they? to know. They that did. was one of my biggest irritations about that yeah. show was her accent. Well, <laughs> she is back to a 
English accent um, for oh, season two. Interesting. There's a plot. There's a plot. They work it into the plot. Um, okay. It's not. It's not like one day she's just different. It's like there's a plot contrived reason why this is a reasonable thing to do. Gotcha. But I feel like that might have had something to do with it. But anyway, um, uh, in. It, so, I mean, it's all this kind of thing. It's basically CD, CD Victoriana gone crazy, so it's all demons and tarot cards and, you know, yeah. blood sacrifices and all that kind of thing. But um, in the in the episode the other day, the uh, characters were sneaking into the British Museum, and they kind of get caught, but then the guy just lets them go past, and the one who's sneaking the other one in explains, nobody's going to say anything because... You know, the British Museum secretly, you know, holds the biggest collection of pornography in the country. So it's like nobody's going to bat an eyelid because everybody's always sneaking into the British Museum, you know. So, right. again, that kind of acknowledgement of the the underbelly underneath the, like, pristine surface of Victorian culture and everything. Um, but anyway, on to this episode. <laughs> We've spent an interesting amount of time talking about Victorian porn. Um, yeah, so. Again, so like with the setting and with, with all the stuff that happens, I mean, as is often the case in Doctor Who, um, what it says about sort of the Doctor and, and the companion is really what it boils down to. Um Sure. Well, are we done talking about... I wanted to say a couple things about Gilly Flower and Ada, but we can come back to them. Well, if, uh... no, that's fine. We can we can talk through them. I, I guess I wasn't necessarily done, but I was thinking oh, we okay. might talk about the Doctor and Clara and then kind of how they relate to the various peoples as well. But I mean... That's fine. I mean... No, no, we... whatever you were going to... Wherever you were going to go, so, go. I mean, and it's hard because, like, the Crimson Horror... Like, if... Because it, it it steps through a couple of different ways to where, like, you know what? One is sort of this nameless thing. Like, you don't really know what it is. But then, mm -hmm. like, you think, oh, it's the Doctor is the Crimson Horror. But then right, sort of sure. by the end, you realize, oh, it's not actually the Doctor. He was just sort of, like, this manifestation of, mm. you know, the botched uh, experiment on him but it really the horror is this you know leech thing and the sort of that's funny i don't think it that... ever i don't think it ever occurred to me when watching to identify the doctor as the crimson horror oh but, really because he's yeah. the thing that they see in their eyes so right so so i when i first well, yeah, I guess I, I was going to say when I first watched the... it, actually when I second watched it and actually got to the point where there was right. the doctor. No, like there, because you see, you know, they take yeah. like the pictures and that's, that's who they see is like the last thing that these people who died saw. Right. Um, yeah, that's funny. I think I always just accepted that it was whatever the red disease was. Um, well, yeah, but like, like I, I didn't think it was like, him it was like him you know uh contaminated but like wow. that it was still like him you know what i mean like okay. that it was like that he specifically mm -hmm. with this red skin whatever that whatever the cause was of it i i right. didn't know at the time of course 
um, when I first saw it, that he was the Crimson Horror. And then, of course, later you find out. I mean, I, mean, it, I guess my point is that it takes you through steps. Like, there's yeah. there's like three or four steps where you sort of have an idea of what the Crimson Horror is, but then it shifts as you kind of mm-hmm. learn more. And so I think... I think the hard part in talking about this, and and you also get that middle section of the flashback. So mm-hmm. you get like the, um, not quite in. I, well, I guess it is kind of in Medius Res where you get, uh, you know, the the investigative journalists uh, sort of who are involved mm-hmm. uh, and going in, and then the one guy dies like immediately, yeah. and you have Gillyflower coming, and like even that kind of stuff, it's like, oh, you don't really know Gillyflower's part at that point. You just kind of think she's maybe like psychic or something, or she knows mm-hmm. what's going to happen like to him, like, I, and maybe not even psychic, but just knows that whatever you know the door that he just went into isn't gonna right. result he's a goner yeah, yeah. well yeah. for him um yeah and it's not so later you kind of realize why and that she's right. actually involved and stuff but um it's it's kind of a rather complex plot saying all of that yeah. like when you when you get down to it just because you have those sort of red herrings haha um <laughs> you know and and the flashbacks and the sort of trying to figure out how all the pieces fit together um even though it is sort of a trashy penny dreadful (laughs) kind of plot you know like it is it does have a level of complexity to it um so you know that's fine um what what did you have to say specifically i guess about gillyflower and mr sweet and ada (laughs) Um, um well nothing too profound just that i love them um i just think uh diana rig is fabulous in this episode i love how she starts as and again i think she herself kind of embodies that bipolarism because she starts as this seemingly very rigid matronly victorian you know uh you know mother figure Yeah. yeah like preaching her sermons and like of this very severe, you know, and by the end she's just like bat insane, you know, like I love that line about, um, well, there's a couple, the doctors, I'm the doctor, you're nuts and I'm going to stop you. Um, but his line about, um, do you like in the wrong hands, this could wipe out all life on this earth. And she says, do you know what these are? The wrong hands. And then she Mm -hmm. kind of giggles like, She's just, uh, you know, again, that very buttoned up exterior and the totally loopy, um, you know, interior. And even her relationship with Mr. Sweet kind of mimics that of underneath her buttoned up Victorian dress is this like gross, you know, awful, you know, prehistoric leech thing Mm. um that's literally lurking right under the surface Um, but she keeps sort of hidden and covered at all times Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think i just like the way she plays the character and how that character kind of stands in for the era that she belongs to yeah and and i think so with your you know your, your continuing bipolar theme here um there is also that that idea that you you mentioned industrialism earlier of 
of sort of the, um, yeah, like maybe the buttoned up, well-to-do, you know, industrialist uh, who's sort of money and power rest on, you know, the the sooty hands of all the workers who are like getting black lung disease or whatever, right, you know? Right. And, 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 and that, yeah, like there, it, like this thing of, Oh, she created like, what was a matchstick factory or something like that right. initially. And that, but like these people were going into it and never being seen again. And mm-hmm. then like sort of converts that into this, yeah. Communal ideal of a paradise. And still people go in and then are never sort of heard from again. And, and I just think of, um, yeah, like, like again, that idea of, um, you know, not, not that like industrialism is per se bad, but like the way it sort of came about and was implemented was certainly bad for many people. And that there's mm-hmm. this, that there's this idea of, of exploitation, you know, really mm-hmm. going on here and that, but then like, you add like the literal like leech, you know, metaphor of right. it, like, you know, right. the sucking of the blood kind of thing, you know, um, and, and that it's also poisoning thing, and you know, and like polluting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I say that. So, you know, I live in uh, central New York near Onondaga Lake, which is um, at least until recently has been considered for the longest time, one of the most polluted lakes like in America. And, mm. It's because of, you know, like the factories and stuff that were here and before regulations and stuff. And um, like you're not even like you certainly can't swim in it and you're not even supposed to like eat the fish out of it or, you know, like right. all these kind of things. And um, so, yeah, just like that idea of. Again, there's this, you know, there are these sort of good economic things that are coming out of it but like it's not good economic things that are coming out of it for everyone and there's certainly mm-hmm. bad things going on sort of just under the surface like you said so mm-hmm. um yeah yeah um and then for ada i mean i think you know you mentioned how she's sort of uh you know, a victim of this experimentation and everything. And then, again, the hypocrisy of blaming her for things that were done to her and everything. But then, of course, that that's the character who allies with the doctor and everything, is it's the one who doesn't fit in on the outside, doesn't fit into the ideal person of gilly flowers utopian society in her appearance but on the inside is the genuine kind person you Mm -hmm. know she's the one who you know even though she kind of locks up the doctor also has compassion for him and you know and he thanks her for you know pulling him out of the pile and saving him and everything. So again, you get this dichotomy between how she looks sort of maybe disfigured on the outside, but rather than that, she's the reverse of her mother, right? Like her mother looks good on the outside and is totally corrupt on the inside. Whereas Ada, you can see her flaws, but inside she's the sort of actually moral person, I Mm. guess. Um, and uh, and I like that she 
bashes Mr. Sweet to pieces at the end. That always makes me laugh. I like that little jolt of... Doctor Who, I think, is a quite optimistic and forgiving show in general, so it, it strikes me funny when one of the heroes just beats the snot out of, you know, this sure. little creature um and you get all the like green goo bits flying right. around and everything right um just to put the exclamation point on like the the dirtiness of the story and everything yeah um but i guess to kind of transition to the doctor i um with ada too i want to point out this uh continuing little theme of of allying the or not allying but like comparing the doctor to the monsters that she calls him her mm-hmm. her special monster yeah. um and it i mean it's happened this certainly isn't the first time i think notably recently we had the line at the end of hide where he says every lonely monster needs a companion right um and you get kind of a similar sentiment here of she she identifies with him as a monster that mm-hmm. they're their monstrousness is what sort of makes them relate to each other. That's why she saves him and, and sort of sets him aside and tries to keep him safe. Um, and, you know, she has the line about it isn't good to be alone and everything. Um, right. But, you know, monsters are usually monsters. And I, I don't know that monster isn't treated the same way as alien. You know, like when... Sure. When the doctor says, you know, what do you mean by people, aliens? I don't know that we're necessarily always including monsters in that definition. Like, Mm -hmm. monster often seems to be the thing which is evil, which is out to kill you, which is sometimes alien, but sometimes those things aren't always synonyms of each other. But here, she kind of seems to use it in that sense of, like, the monsters aren't always evil. Sometimes they're just the things which are different, you know, mm-hmm. um, which are treated as monstrous by people like Mrs. Gillyflower. Um, but who's more monstrous, really? Is it Gillyflower or is it Ada, you know? Sure. Um, so I like that little uni- unity between Ada and the Doctor there. Yeah, um, yeah. No, their their dynamic is definitely interesting um yeah i don't know that i have anything to add to it per se it was yeah i mean and i think even that that may even have played into some of my thoughts of the doctor being the crimson horror just the fact that she's calling him the monster and and whatever um which again, you like she 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 refers to, you know, her monster even before you realize it's the doctor. So, right, you're already potentially thinking in that direction. Um, right, I I do remember having a pretty good idea that it was the doctor in there when she started calling it my monster, and yeah. I was like, that's gonna be the doctor. I can't. The, that word was so kind of. Sure. Conspicuous. Um, I think I remember at the time feeling like a suspicion that that's who was in there. So. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And you mentioned, you mentioned sort of the differences between Gillyflower and Ada, but also there is a sort of similarity mm. um, just in personality, like it, similar personality, but obviously sort of taking out, taking it out in extremely different ways. Cause they're both mm. very ruthless in that way of, right. Right. you know, where Ada just when, once she, I mean, even, even not talking about like her beating on the leech, but even before that, like <laughs> with when she realizes what her mother had done, it's like, you know, forget the yeah. fact that you're my mother, you know, right. you're, I'm going to kill you basically. Yeah. And you know, I, I always feel like when I know that they're actually mother and daughter, that scene must've been really fun to shoot. Sure. <laughs> like sure. you get, you get, uh, I feel like if, if my mom and I were actors, we would like have so much fun just having the freedom to just let rip on each other. Um, yeah. I, you know, I think in retrospect, it like, it makes a lot of sense that he wrote that for them because I have a feeling they enjoyed that. Um, sure. Sure. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Her kind of anger at her mother and her vengeance and the fact that she refuses to forgive her in the end that, mm -hmm. you know, and her, and her mom says, that's my girl. Um, right. Right. So, yeah. You even get that, yeah. that piece in there. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and the, I mean the the, yeah the leech thing threw me. So we get we get the one reference from, Vastra where she's like, oh, I think I remember seeing this before, You're like right. sixty five million years ago. <laughs> like yeah, you know, it's yeah. like this this very you know sort of dramatic thing, and it's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that, and I I like how the doctor kind of calls that out at the end. Like mm -hmm. of like, oh yeah, I didn't see that one coming. Like <laughs> you know the 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 whole situation that this is actually some ancient like right. relic that's been left over. You know somehow, you know these oh surviving on the filth of humanity. But I mean, sixty five million years like humans weren't right. even around that long. So like you can't blame all of it on the filth that humanity has you I... know created. I don't know why I got the impression that it was sort of dormant and that it's humanity's filth, which has made it come back to life a bit. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I don't remember says, exactly she says the something, way it's worded. I but. think it's like like he's grown fat on the filth of you. So like he's maybe barely been eking by, but it's like all the crap they've been dumping into the water, which have been kind of bringing him back to life. I, su um, I suppose that could be. Um. Yeah, I mean, one way or the other, it's, it's, I didn't see that as being part of it, but that's fine. Neither did the doctor, apparently. Um, and I, I it, it kind of works in, I like Jenny and Vastra and Strax in this episode, but it kind of works in like a reason for them to be there, that there's a connection to Vastra's time sure. that she's from. So there's a bit of information that she can supply that the doctor wouldn't necessarily have known. Um, yeah, I do. Well, and, and, you know, speaking of them specifically, like I do like um, that Jenny, that they have Jenny sort of be the one. Cause like, yeah. I mean, I feel like Strax is just so ridiculous that like any scene that he's in, you're kind of noticing him because he's so yeah. ridiculous. 
And then with Vastra, like, I mean, she's obviously, she's like the brains of the operation and, Mm -hmm. you know, they compare her to, well, say that she's the inspiration for Sherlock Holmes and this kind of stuff. So like kind of expect her to be, and Jenny is sort of the overlooked one in a way, I think, um, because of those things. But then they definitely do a good job of showing her, you know, capabilities on a number of levels, you know, just sort of her ability, you know, because she is kind of the unnoticeable one or Mm -hmm. unnoticed one, like she is able to sort of blend into the crowds and whatever, but also has, you know, the lock picking skills and can, can sort of get her way into places. And then also, you know, the, uh, (laughs) sort of the Victorian style leather, you know, yeah, cat suit, you know, fighting gear, uh, you know, and you know, that she knows these martial art moves and kind of stuff. I kind of wish they had done, they had like blown that out even more. Like she, I do too. I always feel like it's disappointingly short. Yeah. The the like butt kicking section. Yeah. Yeah, And then you have Strax come running in with a laser gun and whatever. And that's, I mean, that's fine because it's kind of funny, but like, I do wish that like there had been a longer fight scene there where she Mm -hmm. like, instead of just like beating up like two or three people that like, you know, it's like eight people who are like, you're taking out the whole yeah, group. Like, yeah. And then, yeah. And right. And then have like Drax's like bursting in with the laser gun actually be ineffective because everyone's be, already like, like taken out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, it is that even though it's a little, you know, truncated, at least it's something, you know, to kind of mm-hmm. show that she has, more value to the to the group than just being like Vastra's, you know, partner. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And not to say that like she hasn't been valuable in other situations before, but I feel like in this is one where where she at least got to shine a little bit more. Yeah, um, she's maybe been the least uh, utilized of the three so far. So yeah, it does kind of get to put her out front a bit more. Um, and that and the scene where the doctor kisses her and then she slaps him—that's great. Um, the, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, again, like, and that's not, I mean, obviously we ended up talking like another 20 minutes about all that stuff, you know, after I was sort of ready to move on. So I don't mean to imply that like, it's not worth talking about or anything, but like, again, this is all sort of like, this is all the penny dreadful novel Mm -hmm. plot stuff, um, with it that, you know while fun to talk about it's like okay let's talk about the doctor a little like and clara and because i i'm kind of so one of the things that we get at the end is Mm -hmm. we get the fact that like oh okay here's so this was another misstep the doctor meant to Mm -hmm. go to london ended up in Yorkshire, which, Mm -hmm. okay, that's fine. Um, but then Claire and, but then like with the timing of it, right. The late Victorian era where Mm -hmm. we know we've seen Clara before, Mm -hmm. um, wondering why the doctor is targeting that specific time. Right. And, and we kind of, it seems kind of conspicuous. yeah, Yeah. We kind of, we kind of get Clara asking that, like, or someone asking, was it Clara who asked, oh, you know, is there like a specific reason you wanted to go right. to London? I think Clara does ask and, that, yeah. And the doctor's like, uh, no, no, not really. And it's yeah. like less than convincing. 
Um, I don't know if we get a, I mean, we don't get an answer here. I don't know. I'm saying, I don't know if like in the future we get an answer, but like, I just, I want to make sure we point that out at least because like that does seem significant and also significant that like Claire doesn't really care to ever come back to Victorian England again. Like, like she's had enough of it. Um, and, and is okay, at least for now. Um, yeah, enough of Victorian values for a bit. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we ever get a confirmation of what the doctor was intending to do or, you know, but I think that's definitely worth noting that that was the intention and that he's kind of cagey about, uh, whether or not there was a specific reason to go there. And I feel like there's a shift in the episode. um, And I think maybe because they have this extended separation from each other where he's locked Mm. up for a long period of time and then missing Clara and looking for her and having to get her back and everything. um, There seems to be a shift in his, you know, we've, we've talked not only about the mystery of Clara, but also the doctor's attitude towards the mystery and maybe him not always recognizing her as a person, Mm. you know, behind the mystery, which he wants to solve. Um, And so you, at the beginning, you have this suggestion that they came here specifically so that he could maybe do something, you know, maybe do some investigating or bring her back to that time period or whatever. But then at the end, uh, when, you know, they're, they're asking him, isn't Clara dead? And he can't explain. And at the end, when Jenny says, um, you know, you still haven't explained. And he goes, nope. And he kind of shrugs and seems to kind of be, if not, I think it would be a stretch for the doctor to drop it entirely. But there seems to be more of a, uh, him at peace with not knowing. Um, sure. Like, like in the process of, you know, where's Clara? We have to get Clara back and realizing that he was worried about her and missed her mm-hmm. when the, he, when he's asked about it at the end, he kind of just shrugs his shoulders and say, Nope, I haven't explained and doesn't really pretend to offer any sort of explanation or even go into an explanation of like why he doesn't even have an explanation. Um, it's just, you know, off to the next adventure now. Um, so I think the fact that we start the episode with that kind of nod to the fact of there is still a mystery here and end with the acknowledgement that, well, yeah, the mystery is still unsolved. I think there's like a slight attitude shift there. Sure. And I mean, some of that, uh, you know, probably, I mean, well, it was two episodes ago now where we get we get the um oh, what was her name? The psychic, you know, woman there saying, Emma, you know, yeah. like she mm-hmm. she's just a girl, just a normal girl. Right. So like, I mean, presumably some of that is uh you know, is part of it that like there you know, there's this idea that there really is you know, he's gotten sort of confirmation independent confirmation now mm-hmm. that there really isn't anything special or different or whatever you want to call it about her. But also like I would say in the last episode where 
you can't, he came very close to losing her. Mm. And so, and so that like, even more so than here where, I mean, he does lose her like for, like you said, like, we don't know exactly how long, but you know, a while that, Mm -hmm. um, that they're separated and that, you know, together, those sorts of things, like, you know, he almost, she almost dies in the last episode and, and presumably does die in sort of an alternate universe version of herself. Um, you know, so that those sort of things combined, like all seem to be sort of pulling together to, like you said, like, um, make him sort of realize that there's this ultimately, like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what mm-hmm. what the mystery is and like you said like i don't think it necessarily he's gonna drop it but maybe it's one of those things where it's like it becomes a b plot rather than an a plot right. <laughs> you know like yeah and i think that's a big i think that's a big aspect of the clara what is known as the impossible girl arc of like hmm. the clara mystery um it's not that the mystery isn't important or isn't interesting but I think part of the, the, I guess, message of the mystery and what, at what, how it evolves and how the Doctor evolves with it over time is that understanding of she's not just that mystery. She's a real person behind it. And, like, the Doctor and I think the audience learning to appreciate Clara, the person and the character more so and to value her more so than the riddle that she represents you know mm-hmm. and that's not to say that we are going to drop it and won't resolve it or won't come back to it but i think there is that kind of gradual softening of yeah. um the doctor still wants to know but he doesn't want to know it anymore as much as he wants to just travel with Clara herself, I guess. Sure. And even, um, I mean, even at one point she said, you know, I'm not her, like, I'm not whoever it is. Right. You think I am. Mm -hmm. Was that even the first episode where we had this Clara? Yeah. Yeah. Or early on, uh, in the first couple. Within the Um, first couple. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely seems to be going that way. Like, yeah, like that there's at at this point he can, he's sort of moved on um, or at least has put it on the back burner to sort Mm -hmm. of percolate and we'll figure it out if and when the opportunity presents itself, but maybe isn't proactively pursuing it. Um, Um, And we get just to finish up with them and the end of the episode here. Um, his kind of thing of when she says she doesn't really feel like going back to Victorian era. Um, he says, you're the boss. And she says, am I? And you get Mm -hmm. this kind of smirk from her, but even when she's alone, when he's dropped her off back home, she's kind of repeating that to herself. I'm the boss. I'm the boss. So this, yeah. yeah. So, you know, just maybe something that like a, a certain kind of smugness in that like that this realization of and i think in this episode you can see that uh her kind of reveling in her role as companion like how pleased she is when she uh tells him about the chimneys and he mm-hmm. you know and he 
that she noticed that before he did. Um, and her thing about the chairs, you know, that I don't need a screwdriver. I have a chair and everything. So you're getting this kind of confidence, I guess, from her and realizing mm-hmm. she's a player and, and can contribute, I guess. Um, and is even kind of the boss at the end. And that's, you know, sure. Sure. Maybe an exciting thing to realize. Um, uh, and so the final piece then is there at the end because mm-hmm. she gets back home and she's muttering to herself and looks up and sees on the computer a picture of herself uh, along with some other people. And mm-hmm. it, But of course it's an old picture and realizes that there are several old pictures of various times and that the children who she is of of whom she is the nanny what's the right way to say that the <laughs> children she babysits there uh-huh. we go um have been doing their research on her and have figured out that she keeps popping up all over these historical pictures and stuff and that sport that somehow or other her new boyfriend they call him uh uh-huh. is a time traveler and are sort of begging to go with her uh, right. on, on some sort of adventure. Right. So. And they, he's an alien. Why would he be an alien? Yeah. The chin. The chin. Um, chin. Yeah. And the, and the time travel. And the time uh, travel. Yeah. So interesting that like, cause this is, I mean, we've obviously had other, companions who have sort of brought in family members or friends mm-hmm. or whatever into sort of the know of mm-hmm. the doctor. But I think this is really the first time where that I can think of offhand where like an outside person has kind of figured it out on their own before like being presented with like being the told. doctor and the TARDIS like right yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's true. I mean, um, I, obviously I don't know classic who, so maybe there's right there, of, of what we've that's, seen anyway. that's that's always a possibility but yeah, yeah like of what we've seen like i don't know that i can't remember any other time where it's been like sort of 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 their own volition and i and actually the um it reminded me of way back in the very beginning first episode of mm. cliff no uh-huh Cliff, is that right? No. I think it's Cliff, yeah, isn't it? Is it? Um, <laughs> I can't remember now. Clint, I think maybe? it is Cliff. I don't, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, that, that, that idea. Clive. 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 Oh, that's right. I knew it, <laughs> I knew it was something like that and I couldn't quite figure out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Right, right, with all his photos of. The doctor right. in the JFK assassination. And, and of course, and, 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 and of course we've talked about, um, yeah, so like with, with the Love and Monsters and, and Linda, you know, the group there and their kind of thing too, but they never, I mean, they do kind of eventually meet the doctor um, and then you realize like, you know, when he was a kid, he had seen the doctor mm-hmm. or whatever. But like, even that doesn't seem quite the same. Like, like this is like really, like they've done their homework and they're presenting right. it to her and now you know, they're like begging to go with her and that right. kind of stuff. So, yeah. Right. I also think it's, it's a bit of a return to 
uh, a, a Russell Davies type thing that Moffat didn't do as much of bringing in the extended kind of family. Now, there's a few exceptions. Like, I think maybe Brian Pond is the biggest. Like, I mean, with Amy, I mean, you had Rory and River, but they were very much companions themselves. And I think right. part of, but you didn't get as much of a sense of, um, you don't ever really get to know Amy's parents, you know? Um, right. You kind of barely see them when they get sort of restored. Um, and then, um, you know, we have a friend of Amy's who turns out to be her daughter. Um, right. And then, you know, right at the end there, you get Brian, which I think is maybe the closest thing we've had. Um, and that's but, an accident. And that's an accident, and, yeah. he's not like He's not, like, looking in into who the doctor is like right, you know right. outside of that he doesn't even know anything about it until suddenly he's in the TARDIS right right but but here we're getting more of that sense of uh a, a slight more um inclusion of Claire's domestic life I guess a bit more um mm. Whereas, like, for the Pons, I feel like their domestic life and their doctor life are always very much intertwined. Mm. Here, you're kind of getting more so, like, like you know, Rose's family or Donna's family that are kind of drawn into the orbit mm-hmm. of the doctor a little bit. Um, it's, uh, you know, just kind of edging back more in that direction than, than it's been in a while. So, um, and, yeah, so we'll see... Uh, I don't think it's a big spoiler to say the kids might get a peek in the TARDIS next week. So, Mm. um, we'll see how they like it. Um, yeah. And what happens when they do. And what happens when they do. So, um, all right. Sounds, sounds fun. We'll also be back with some more Angel on that. So, all right. See you then. (laughs) 